Live from the 2012 Chicago Fringe Festival. You're listening to Small Fish Radio Theater and Thespinarium. We're your hosts, Herzovi and Green, and we're here to give a voice to a small variety of artistic fish. In the big pond, varieties like playwright, poet, and storyteller. Tonight, Small Fish Radio Theater and Thespinarium presents a live recording of their latest podcast, The Adventures of Skater Girl, and other stories. Our featured artists this evening, Miss Kitten Von Steuben, Joy Torbjörnsen Coates, and don't forget the lovely Lisa and Jenna, who will be joining us in the show later on. Today we bring you three very short plays. Two stories, a poem, and a lot of other noise, some of which you will be making. Thank you, thank you. But aren't we forgetting something? Uh, Like? Who we are, Small Fish Radio, I mean. Smallfish Radio presents curated programs of original theater, music, poetry, and storytelling. Snore. You sound like a talking website. I mean, what about the Thespinarium? What about it? Well, you still haven't said what that is. We should have a contest for the best definition of Thespinarium. Let's not and say that we did, okay? Well, I was just trying Green, hit it. Our first play of the evening, Pure Madness by Walt McGuff. Walt McGuff is a playwright with a last name that is hard to pronounce. He's a founding ensemble member of Sideshow Theater Company here in town. And though he moved to Boston a few years ago, he left his heart here in the Midwest, buried in a shoebox under an unmarked Naperville fence post. It's caused surprisingly few medical complications. It is a dark and stormy night. Professor Duminus is in his lab. He paces. After a moment, his henchman, Lotho, enters. You called Professor Duminus? Yes, Lotho. Come in, please. I apologize for the smell. I was cleaning the holding pens for the platypons, and you know how mutants get. Yes, Lotho, I am well aware. Uh, Lotho, when I sent you out last night, did you do exactly as you were told? Of course, Professor. You followed my instructions to the letter. As always, I placed the spasmatoxin in the city's reservoir and was sure to neurolate anyone who saw me. It was, as they say, the perfect crime. Indeed. And you did not alter the toxin in any way? You kept it in its cryo chamber until the exact moment of deployment? Of course, Professor. I never stray from your orders. So it is as I feared. I don't follow, sir. Have you read the paper today, Lotho? Was there word of the spasmotoxin? Yes, you might say that. <gasps> How splendid! Was the entire city laid low? Did it make their limbs seize up? Did it melt their eyeballs? Did it cause painful ulcers on their very souls like you said it would? No, Lotho. We did none of those things. It cured them. It cured them? Of what? Of everything, it seems. Cancer, rickets, the common cold, chlamydia, aches and pains, lupus, hemophilia, hypochondria, and 90% of teenagers polled have reported a significant decrease in their acne. The spasmotoxin has, it seemed, solved most of the world's problems in one night. A local editorial has pronounced me, and I quote, a hero. Oh, sir, I'm so sorry. Thank you, Lotho, but I'm quite inconsolable. But the research, all the tests you ran, 100% mortality rates on all the laboratory rats. That was the problem. The toxin kills only rats and cockroaches. It has solved the city's infestation problems, too. (laughs) I've failed, Lotho. I've violated every oath I ever took. I've done good through my science. 
I set out to grind the world to dust under my cruel cyber boot, and instead I made everyone happy. Oh, God, they're going to give me a Nobel Prize! Now, sir, it's not all that bad. See here. Professor Duminus's magic serum is the sort of great achievement that could only come from the tenderest of hearts. Tender? I? Have they forgotten the Slothtron incursion of 1997? Well, certainly you can't weigh your entire career against this single mistake. Uh, it's more than that, Lotho. I've been slipping lately more and more. I blew up that volcano and it created a tropical paradise. I resurrected a dark and merciless god from ages long forgotten, and all he did was start a celebrity religion. I spent months developing the Pterodox, a puzzle so impenetrable as to warp the strongest of minds, and it was voted Jumble of the Year by Modern Living Magazine. Perhaps you're just in a slump? But what if I'm not, Lotho? What if it's worse? What if, subconsciously, I've been doing good on purpose? Professor, you've dedicated your life to evil. You sold your soul when you were 12. You cybernetically removed your conscience. You went to Vassar. <laughs> You're a mad scientist through and through. Perhaps, yes, but, but which is more my calling? The mad or the science? What if my brain wants to be mad, but my heart wants to be science? What if I've been living a lie all this time? My father, Dr. Apocopane, was right. He could tell I'd never make it in this business. His final words have been echoing in my head all morning. Close the portal. The dinosaurs are escaping. I never knew what he meant until now. If I may, Professor, perhaps all is not lost. Oh, it is. There's nothing left. All those heroes I killed, all those puppies I tortured, all those orphans I mocked. I can hear them laughing now, mocking me right back in their tiny orphan voices. Uh, perhaps, but even if you're hardwired to do good against your will, couldn't you alter the methodology? Find a happy medium between mad scientist and good scientist. You can be a disgruntled scientist. Hmm. Explain. Well, you could do good, but grudgingly, cruelly. Take this cure of yours, for example. You could demand exorbitant fees for it. Um, or uh, you could save the rainforest. Only the way you save it would be turning the trees themselves into godless, bloodthirsty mutants. Do you see? It's doing good, but with a catch. With a catch, eh? I suppose that could be sufficiently evil. If I were to help the world, but make it fear me at the same time. I could save the ozone layer with flesh-eating locusts. That's a good one. Or, or market an alternative energy, highly affordable death car. Yes. Or, or scientifically cure homelessness and poverty, but then everyone gets attacked by giant snakes for some reason. That's the spirit. And then, when they give me that Nobel prize. Instead of a speech, I'll just punch them in the neck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a disgruntled scientist. I rather like this, Lotho. It shows, sir. You're glowing. Of course I am. I have a new lease on life. I shall be a force of altruism, feared across the land. Nations will cower as they await my next good deed with trepidation and dismay. The earth shall quake before the might of my vengeful philanthropy. We must begin post-haste, Lotho. I have big plans. But first, we must have a toast. Uh, to what shall we toast, Professor? 
We shall toast Lotho to a dark and charitable future. Toast to the black storm clouds of impending public service. Toast to the tortured call of a more gracious and fearful tomorrow. Toast with me, Lotho, to science. To, to science. fun right now is a contest for the definition of thespinarium. All right, you, sir, in the front row, what do you suppose a thespinarium could be? A dancer. A dancer. I like it. I like it. Any others? You! Your phone went off earlier. You're on the spot. All right, let's see it. What, what do you think a thespinarium is? A breed of dog, interesting. A breed very of dog, very interesting. Oh, yes. you know, I think this was really an excellent idea of mine. Can I have a little bit of applause? Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Next up, Janice O'Bell with Small Snail. Janice O'Bell is an actress, director, storyteller, and teacher. She is founder and co-host of Here's the Story and a company member of Real Talk Live. You can see her performing in WNEP's Home Theater Project later this month. Thanks, Michael. All right, here's a story. To be sure, there are bigger things to pay attention to, like making plans to move to Chicago, or filing my taxes, or finding new work, or preparing for my 10-year CAT scan, or choreographing for an epic political musical comedy written and performed by 254 to 14-year-olds. There are things I could be busy with, but this afternoon, I am paying attention to snails. I have a lamp with the glass shade part in the shape of a nautilus shell. It's this smooth, frosted, heavy glass of creamy orange and green and the shell kind of hovers over a metal base in the shape of a nymphy woman lounging on a wave. It all has this very 1920s Art Nouveau spiritualist feel to it. I keep it because my mother gave it to me, but I never turn it on. This afternoon, I turn it on because it is so dark in San Francisco with this low and foggy rain that it is almost like night inside my apartment. And so I stand in the kitchen staring at that lit up shell for a long time, not doing any of the important things I should be, but thinking slow. First, about a story of a princess whose beauty is so bright, other people have to hold up little pieces of colored glass to look at her through. And then about my friends who say that this lamp shell shade looks like a boob and how I can't help but think that now every time I look at it. And then finally, about the makers of shells, about snails and how they conduct this fractal miracle of calcium and protein on a regular basis. I worry for a second to have my attention caught up in small things when big things are looming. But I decide it feels all right, and in affirmation of this, I leave the lamp on when I go to mail Augusta's letter in the rain. On my way to the mailbox on California Street, I let raindrops get all over the envelope so that Augusta can imagine it being rained on on its way to her if she wants to. I'm looking down at the letter and the drops when I see, just there, in the middle of the sidewalk, a real-life glistening snail, complete with gigantic spirally nautilus shell, the biggest one I've ever seen. The snail's body is about three inches long, and it has the marking of a jungle cat all over it. And it has little ruffles around all of its edges. And on its back is this exquisite spiral shell, probably the size of a ping pong ball. I've never seen a snail like this in Northern California or actually anywhere outside of pictures. And it seems so out of its element on the sidewalk with only closed doors and barred windows to one side and racing traffic to the other. I stand over him in the rain, 
watching him move slowly, looking around for a patch of grass, but I don't see one all up and down the street. People are rushing by in their heavy rain shoes. And though the snail is making confident progress towards the bus stop like he knows exactly where he's going, I keep imagining the sound of him crunching and so I decide to intervene. I put the letter in my pocket and I pick him up by the back of his shell, expecting that he will suck himself neatly into it, like the smaller tormented snails of my childhood, and just travel along nicely. Protection in moments of abduction being what snails are good for after all. But he has a very different idea. As I walk with him in the rain, he unfurls himself outward. Belly to the sky in rain, head stretched upright, looking around like he doesn't want to miss a moment of his abduction. <laughs> this impresses me. His determined vulnerability and the splendor of his exposure. But it also disturbs me a little bit. His ambition and fearlessness. What is the cause for it? especially when one of his eyes catches sight of my fingers behind him and he begins stretching his tiger-striped head around towards my hand, bringing himself almost all the way out of his shell in order to get to me as if there is something he's going to do about all of this. So I start walking faster and then trotting and move my fingers closer to the back of his shell so that they are still out of his reach, but this leaves me with too narrow of a grip to hold him for very long. So there's a park two blocks away, I know, but we're not gonna make it there before he is crawling naked and shameless up my arm. Luckily, just before he reaches my fingers, I find him a garden. It is a glorious garden, elevated about three feet above the sidewalk, with lush plants and wet fallen leaves and cool slate stones and a little homemade waterfall. It looks like a place that no one ever walks, but just admires. So I flip him over and reach through the fence and set him right side up on a leaf, and then stand back and watch him get his bearings. And the best part of this story is that today, I think I saw a snail happy. I would swear that he was. Just the way that he was moving, rippling broadly over the leaves, his foot all sure, relishing every slippery, smooth, damp texture of the earth his eyes and nose and mouth stretching up to the tops of the clovers to catch the drops they held, to drink them, or just to feel them on his face. When I felt my jacket soak through, I said goodbye to the tiger snail and headed back to the mailbox. Turning south, I see a fat, bright, low chunk of rainbow on the horizon, and I think about angels or something like them. I think about the times that I have been in a snail's position crawling along in a dangerous place until I was picked up and seemingly moved out of harm's way by something bigger than me, flown and ferried across vast distances and past sights and sounds moving faster than I could explain later just to be placed safely down in some benevolent circumstantial garden. I look around me to take in San Francisco in all of its hilly, pastel-painted twinkliness a little ticky-tack town propped up by the side of the sea, never warmer or colder than you want it to be. I thought of how I landed here 10 years ago after a dream led to a diagnosis and trust in something bigger than me held me through seizures in Times Square and a series of experiences and people from New York to California supported me in every way I needed in order to get well. And standing on the sidewalk in this place, with the new sun on my face, and the rain dripping from all these silvery trees, I am flooded with gratitude for my garden. I think of the bigger things that I put aside to pay attention to the smallness of that snail, and I mail the letter, and I say thank you to whatever it is that may have loved the smallness of me enough to have been paying attention all this time. Thanks. Thank you. That was lovely. Thank you, Michael. 
Oh, oh, exactly how lovely? Like on a scale of one to 10, that's the important question. 25. Oh, Ugh. Michael. Oh, please, get a room, come on. All right, back to my favorite part of the show. in the back with the glasses and the slightly striped checked shirt. What do you suppose this banarium means? Oh, he's looking down. Oh, he's shy. He's Perhaps you can help him out, pretty lady in the front row. Uh, I think it's a room where actors go to play in the sandbox. A room where oh. actors go to play in the sandbox. I like, I like that. that. Wow, I would really one. like one of those. Yeah. My, aren't you clever and pretty? We don't have much time in this bottle, so I'm going to suggest that we might introduce the next piece so we can move along. Otherwise, we will be here all night. Thank you, Joy. Our next play is Body Farm by Laurel Haynes. Laurel Haynes lives in New York City, but was a resident of the uptown neighborhood of Chicago for many years. Her hobbies include attempting to grow plants without killing them. I had a dream last night that I was back on the body farm. The sun was shining bright on the corpses strewn across the lawn. It would be a day of spectacular putrefaction. I checked on number 301, a young male stuffed inside the trunk of an 87 Chevy. He was melting. I checked the size of the maggots. They were getting fat. Everything was right on schedule, and then I heard a... I perked up my ears like a newly born fawn. It was coming from the shed. A young girl was buried in there. She was about three months gone. I closed the trunk of the Chevy. I pictured the girl, her tattered red dress falling off her bones. I opened the shed door and I'm at the family pig roast. Oh, man. Mm, mm, that is good. And Aunt Janice yeah. will not oh, shut up God. about her green bean mm, casserole. You got the soy sauce. It's definitely the soy sauce. And my little cousin Louie is wiping his nose on my jeans. <laughs> and that is why I hate dreams. They tell you nothing. I worked at the body farm the summer after high school. This body farm is a scientific research institute dedicated to the study of the decay of the human body. The grounds are 120 acres with a body approximately every 1.5 acres. Your job is to keep the grounds clean and clear except where there's a body. Each body site is clearly marked off with red tape. You are not to cross the red tape. Only researchers cross the red tape. You understand? Yes. Yo. The goal is to keep a clear path to each body. You mow the grass, whack the weeds, and trim the hedges. You will not touch a body. Touching a body is grounds for dismissal. <laughs> Let me make one thing perfectly clear. There is nothing funny about these bodies. Now get whacking. On the farm, I found myself paired with Dirk. <laughs> A guy who dropped out of high school after repeating 10th grade four times. We spent a lot of alone time together. What's your name again? Xanadu. That's a freaky name. Well, my parents were hippies. Do you smell something? Yeah. I think it's a body. See the red tape? Let's get closer. But we're not supposed to cross the red tape. Come on. No one's gonna know. Do not cross the red tape. Do not cross the red tape. I have poor judgment. That's obvious. No, I have really poor judgment. <laughs> I mean, I let a hyena out the zoo. How? My brother-in-law, he works there. He gave me a tour, and I saw an opportunity. That is incredibly stupid. I know. Did they catch it? No. I don't think they even know it's gone. You should tell them. Well, yeah, but why? 
He's finally free. I'm not sure someone like you should be taking care of dead bodies. Well, I'm exactly the kind of person who should be taking care of dead bodies. The summer went on and on. Show me your boobs. What? No. It was worth the shot. <laughs> How would you rate your boobs on a scale of one to ten? I don't rate my boobs. Well, I just want a ballpark figure. I don't feel safe around you. Oh, come on. It's not like I'm going to get at you. Uh, but seriously, if I wasn't like a scary dropout loser, would you be interested in me? No. I sensed a pause. There was no pause. Hesitation? That's what a pause is, and there wasn't any. Yeah, right. How come you're here? Why aren't you in college? I'm taking a year off. Why? I had to figure things out. What kinds of things? Things, okay. Well, you got addicted to diet pills. I tried to commit suicide. No, you didn't. I did. And you're working here? It's helping me. Wow. Dirk stopped asking about my boobs after that. He seemed quiet, introspective. And then, one day... Santa do! What are you doing? You're not supposed to cross the tape. <gasps> Is that blood? Pass me that bucket. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Shut up. Oh, my God. I wish you hadn't seen this. But now that you have, I'm going to let you in on an incredible business opportunity, which, <laughs> which you will have no choice but to accept. I'm harvesting their organs. Harvesting their organs? We will make tons of money, dude. Look in that bucket. Oh, but these organs are dead. They're useless. I'm putting them on ice. It doesn't matter. My dad had a lung transplant, and it has to come from a living donor. <sighs> Damn. You'd better get rid of these. The researchers would be really upset. I'll put them back. They won't notice. They're going to notice. What was that? Some animal. I've never heard an animal like that around here. Oh my God, it's the hyena. Bob. Who? I named him Bob after I opened the cage. Come here, Bob. Here, Bob. Well, we can't let him in here. He'll rip the bodies to shreds. Great idea. We'll blame it on Bob. We? It's genius. That night, Dirk accidentally left the gate open. I got fired. After the hyena incident, the body farm was shut down for two weeks. They brought in a hazmat team to remove the bodies, most of which had been mangled beyond hope. I stayed home and watched Wheel of Fortune. Geraldine called and asked if I wanted to come back one day. Once they got a fresh crop of bodies, she offered to make me a research intern. But I was done with the body farm. Except in my dreams. In my dreams, I'm always crossing the red tape. And now it's time for a newer segment of our show, something you're going to be the first to hear. We like to call it the Meaningfully Meaningless Minute. It could be odd information. That may or may not change your life. It could be true. It could be urban legend. You can follow up with it if you care to. All we know is we heard it or we read it, and we found it meaningful. As well as meaningless. In this episode, our Meaningfully Meaningless Minute concerns gorillas. It is said a farting gorilla is a happy one. And that while repetitive passage of gas is how other gorillas tell each other they're in a good mood, gorillas tearing up the place, combined with chest beating and screaming, says there is trouble afoot. If you find yourself presented with such a screaming, chest-thumping gorilla, to save yourself either crouch low and avert your eyes, 
or defend yourself by shaking a caterpillar in front of you. A caterpillar. To scare them. A specific kind? Uh, got me. And the moral of the story being? Stick with the farting gorilla and all will be well. <laughs> Speaking of our ancestry, on to today's featured poem, Ape, by Will Cooper, as interpreted for drum and voice by Miss Kitten and your co-host, Green. Will Cooper is a poet and playwright who gapes and apes joyfully with his fellow primates. He's less hairy on the top than he used to be, but he doesn't miss it. That's not where he spends the most time scratching. You're nothing but an ape. Clean shaven, maybe, with fine dental work and credit line, but in your knuckle, brow, and shape, you're ape. Don't deny nature's due. Designer labels won't expel nor lofty thoughts. The smell of creature through and through. You primate, you. It's a fact you can't escape. You picket lice and scratch your back. You murder, screech, and feign attack. At every common sight, you gape. You may be smart, but you're an ape. Oh, homo sapien, there's no shame. Your ancestors lived in trees and clutched their babes to crooked knees. Nor is Darwin to blame. Apes and you are much the same. So when next your soul aspires to climb up stained glass spires where heaven shines, look down the shadowed limbs and vines where kin of yore once swung through time. They don't ape us. It's them we mime. Thank you, thank you so very much. Man, I love this audience. All right, now, back to my favorite part of the show. So, we're gonna switch things up a little bit. What is the opposite of thespinarium? You, sir, in the suit jacket back there. An aquarium. <gasps> an aquarium. Excellent. Perhaps an aquarium where actors play in a sandbox. Yes, that seems even that, more that's a good delightful. One. Yes, I like that. My goodness, you are handsome and very clever, sir. Guys, guys, we have a lot more to do when you were talking way too much. I suppose that means it's time for our next story. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lisa Scott with... Tequila in a Teacup. Lisa Scott is a Chicago-based playwright and storyteller. Originally from Washington State, Lisa is especially fond of Chicago for its public transportation and back alleys. <laughs> Thank you. Belmont is next. Doors open on the right at Belmont. I'm perched on the L seat. Back straight, hands folded. Rage is exploding in my chest. Three young men ages 17 to 21 have taken over the back of the train. The oldest, black Irish, oh, coolly sexy as he talks about the completion of his seven-year high school plan, distributes coors from a six-pack. He pops the tab and swigs. My lips involuntarily purse in that particular way that says, you can't do that. You're not supposed to. The sexy rebel commands my attention. I wrestle with resentment. Here is a person who can do what he wants. I watch a young woman near me. She's in her late 20s and I read in her long, straight brown hair a powerful compunction to conform. She looks at the young men, looks down, looks at them, looks down. And I wonder if she feels a rage as confusing and as intense as mine. As the men exit, she meets my eye. Isn't it illegal to drink on the train? Yes, I say. I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to. <laughs> At that moment, I have an idea. Maybe I should 
drink on the train. It's a small thought, but hot pinpricks of fear cross my chest, fast breaths, and my dad, long ago, counting to make me go to bed and stay quiet. Three, two, one and one half, one. Probably. I'll drink on the train. Seeking a companion, I asked my friend Tom, who reeling from a recent divorce is sleeping with college girls and illegally climbing park monuments. I'll do it. If you take it to the logical extreme, you smoke on the train. At that thought, I feel panic. Smoke spreads. The quiet rage of women might give way to the vocal criticism of men. Three, two, one. I can't smoke on the train. I approach Anne, a fellow writer. No big deal. I've always got a flask on me. <laughs> this pokes a hole in my theory about the freedom differential between men and women. I reject Anne as someone who does not understand the dreadful need to obey. I decide a companion is weak. I'll drink on the train alone. Afraid, I delay until a particularly depressing date. Based on emails, he seemed good. Um, my date talks nonstop about his young adult crossover fantasy novel centered on an untamed girl named Chance and about the self as an artificial construct. So I tell him about my play, about a man journeying through a war-torn continent in a quest for redemption. Oh man, do we dislike each other. <laughs> We divide the bill precisely by menu item. As he stiffs me on the tip, I make a decision. Tomorrow, I'm gonna drink on the train. <laughs> Before I head out to a play by a young African-American guy who's known as a provocateur, I pack in my black Chanel bag a bottle of Don Julio tequila and a teacup with an orange sunburst and a blue windmill, the last of a set of four my father once gave me. Because this is how I'm gonna drink on the train. <laughs> I can't help myself. I pour three-fourths of the Don Julio into another bottle. Because if something goes wrong, I don't wanna lose all my good liquor. <laughs> and I wrap the teacup in a pillowcase because I couldn't stand it if it breaks. The play was an effort to do something interesting that failed by not going far enough. So with this in mind, on the way home, I board the most crowded car. And I count 15 people. And I take a sideways facing seat so as not to be discreet. And to get attention, I chat up a young couple cutely nestled over an iPhone. Um, what are you doing? We're looking at TVs. That was short and not successful. <laughs> I smile at a girl with a green streak in her hair. And she looks quickly away. Look at me. I want to scream. I am about to do something transgressive. I unwrap my teacup, place it between my knees, open the bottle of Don Julio, and pour. No one looks. <laughs> Teacup in hand, bottle still between my knees. I toast my reflection in the window across the way. Not a glance. It's a series of quick emotions. Fear still, and joy, and ridiculousness. And then just the burn of tequila, the hangover from my date. The sound of the L, the sight of the floor, rigid and rubber and swept clean. And then, I see the green-haired girl glance quickly away. Did she notice? Was that a smile? A smirk? Of envy? Maybe? Oh God, I hope so.
So, uh, Lisa, I, I gotta ask, have you drunk on the train lately? Maybe. And uh, what did you maybe drink? A soy latte. <laughs> Sweet. Despinarium. Despinarium. Hey, Green. Hey, Herzovi. What invention of Thomas Edison's is used every day? Electricity. Wrong. It's the word hello with an E. Not to be confused with the Dickensian hello with an A or the hello with a U. Thomas Edison invented hello with an E. Mm -hmm. In August of 1877, it was found in correspondence via Edison suggesting the best way of starting a telephone conversation was to say hello because it can be heard 10 to 20 feet away. If you're 10 feet away, why do you need a telephone? That's not the point. The point is, as Edison was making refinements on Bell's design, he found a shorter and more efficient phrase for testing the line. Shorter than what? Uh, shorter for like, are you there? Or hello, who's there? Or, or can you excuse, hear me now? Um, oh, excuse yeah. me, or, can you tell me oh, who this what? 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 Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Oh, right. And now, ladies and gentlemen, our final piece for the evening. The very first episode of The Adventures of Skater Girl by Chicago playwright Trina Kekasik. Born and raised in Chicago, Trina has a gift for divining free and mostly legal parking spaces and credits her years at Lane Tech High for her ability to weld, work a lathe, pour aluminum castings, and tune up a car if she feels inclined. In this episode of The Adventures of Skater Girl, on a bitterly cold summer night, we find Skater Girl at Buckingham Fountain. In the shadows lurks an old man. So I wore my ice skates to Buckingham Fountain? But it's July. Right. You have ice skates. Right. You want to join me? If they catch you skating on the fountain. It's the middle of the night. Everyone's home in bed except you. Why aren't you home in bed? Because it's snowing. In July. I know. Isn't it sick? Sick? Sick. You know, cool, amazing, stupendous. And I am about to check something off my sick list. You have a sick list? A list of things to do before you, you know, stop with all this doing we all do. Don't you have one? As a matter of fact, I have such a list. Sure you don't want to join me? I'll watch. Uh, make sure you don't fall through the ice. So... Your list. And my sick list. I sense it. Your age. You probably have pretty much of it checked off, no? Yes, and no. I thought this item would be the most elusive one for me, but look! Ice skating on Buckingham Fountain in July. Suddenly, something swims beneath her feet. Oh, there's something under my feet. Those little orange fish? No, very big. Look, there it goes! Ah, Asian carp. Skated on Buckingham Fountain in July with carp. Oh, what eyebrows that will raise when I am gone. And they skated together for a while. I with invisible skates. So, your list. What haven't you checked off? Ice fishing in Buckingham Fountain in July. After their secret late-night ice-fishing and skating party, the old man and skater girl went their separate ways. She to wherever she goes, and I here to my newsstand, where I have made my living for 40 years. As of today, a fishbowl with a large carp sits on the counter. You should put the swimsuit issue in front. You get more business. I have plenty of business. Well, I could fool me. So your list, what on it? How do you know about my list? Not deaf. I hear you and Skater Girl talk list back at Fountain. Tell me most elusive item, and then I tell you mine. Fish don't have lists. Of course fish got lists. Everything got lists. Even ants and worms got lists. What could an ant have on a list? Move that breadcrumb from here to there. <laughs> Take over giant picnic. <laughs> Fly on back of ego. What is next thing on your list? Reading. Just reading? Just reading. But you sit here all day with all these words. Right. Why you no read? When I read, my eyes get lost and the words come off the page and shatter in the light. 
I blink and they land. I try again and they shatter. Now, what's the most elusive thing on your list? Oh, well, isn't it obvious? No. I like to fly with wings in the sky. While the carp and the old man talk about how a fish might fly, Skater Girl thinks she has a dream, even though it seems very real. She sees a floating bed, and next to it, ice skates. And in the bed, the Skater Girl breathes. Her heart rate monitor beeps beside her. It goes slower and slower and slower, almost stopping. She wakes ever so slowly. She finds her list slowly. She counts items on it. It's the worst news for the list could be considered complete. Frantically, she searches it for more. The monitor, the breathing ever more slowly proceed without her. She slips away and away as she sinks more heavily and heavily to the bottom of the paper. Bam! Conveniently, she gets an idea. The monitor speeds up as she adds a new item to her list and her heart becomes lighter. She bolts from the bed and escapes through the window. Skipping all the way to her grandma's house. Here, they sit on the kitchen table, as they are inclined to do. Wait a minute. Your heart almost beeped its last. Yes, like I was saying, I was slipping and slipping, and I thought, why waste an organ on me? My list is done. Why waste an organ? And I slipped on the slope of the list being done, you know. You skated on Buckingham Fountain in July. With a carp and an old man. This seems important. I, I know not why. Well, then what? I was slipping and slipping down the slope of done. I held my breath to await the worst possible thing, and then it hit me, and I climbed back up. Thank goodness for things that hit you. What was it? It's a surprise for you. Therefore, I need you to come with me. Where? Newsstands. There's an old man with a carp we must find to help him with his list. While he and I were skating, we spoke of our lists and the things upon them, and what he wants to do might involve one of the things on your list. The next thing. Hmm. Is he good looking? He did skate with me on the fountain in July. Sounds promising. I'll go with you if you go back and get a newer organ. But I don't need it. I told you. I added an item. What if you find yourself slipping and no pen or pencil to be found? Well, then what? Then I'll add something to the list in my own blood. Hmm. Good idea. And off to search for the old man with a carp. Then to the fountain they all went where the ice has now melted. Here. Skater girl introduced old man and grandma, and then she explained. So, you see, old man, my grandma can read to you, for the thing on her list is to read War and Peace out loud and have someone listen. There. Oh, uh, no, 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 for then won't I have simply completed my list and have no reason no, to... No, that's the beauty of it all. Not only is War and Peace very long, just as you slip down the slope of the list being done, if you add another and another and another, you can climb back up until you decide once and for all the thing on your list is finally... The end of your rope. I added your item to my list just as I was about to slip down the slope... You? No. You're far too young to slip. But she has an organ that was born very old in her very young body. That happens sometimes. This is terrible. It can be. Depends. You know. You must add a young organ to your list. Oh, no. That will never do, for the installation of such a thing will only lead to things unpleasant. The pursuit of things pleasant is far more enjoyable, thank you. And have you not just checked off the last and most recent of such items? (gasps) (gasps) So she had. And that very old organ in the very young body skipped a beat or two. Oh, Oh, but my wings! Someone help me find my wings, please! Oh, yes! And as she reached into the air and wrote, Find the wings of a fish on her list, her heart became even lighter. For it was widely known, finding wings for a fish could take an eternity. So it could. And the old man and grandma take time to look each other up and down and decide they're 
new arrangement is promising. And the cop and the skater girl begin their journey together. The cop smiles and says, thank you. This reading, is it the last thing on your list, old man? And on his list, the old man wrote another item. Not anymore. And the grandma added Anna Karenina for good measure. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all for now. Tune in to our next podcast to learn the answers to the questions. Will Skater Girl find the wings for the fish? Will Grandma and the Old Man finish War and Peace? So, just so you know, in the next episode, Skater Girl, that's me, it'll give you an excuse to come back and see me. Anyway, uh, Q and Skater Girl go searching for wings in high places and meet a very angry intro. Yes, yes, yes. So stay tuned. Stay tuned to what? We're not on the radio. Well, no, but we'll be on the internet. All right. So you can find this podcast free later this fall. Just head over to iTunes, look up Small Fish Radio Theater. Or head to our website, smallfishradio.com, which happens to be on the buttons that were in a box near the door when you came in. Grab one on the way out. Tonight's program has featured the talents of Kat Dean, Michael Herzogi, Joy Tobjornson Coates, our storytellers, Lisa Scott, Jenna Sobel. Directing and sound design by Trina Kakasik. And, and last but not least, Michael John Kelly. Small Fish Radio. Small Fish Radio would like to thank Chicago Fringe, Chicago Dramatists, and Sound Advisor Max Kakasik. Special thanks to Chicagoland Methodist Senior Services for providing us with rehearsal space and bridesmaids dresses provided by Trina Kakasik. Small Fish Radio Theater is produced by Michael John Kelly and Trina Kakasik. Thanks for coming, everybody. Have a great night. Have a good night. Thank you. Woo!